Accessing library computer data. Level 9 authorization required. Command codes verified. Welcome to Moms Going Boldly, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Moms Going Boldly is two moms who love Star Trek and who also happen to have children on the autism spectrum. We talk about the new Star Trek Discovery TV series, as well as any autism issues we see along the way. I am your host, Elizabeth, and with me is my co-host, Vicki. Hi, I'm Vicki. We are Moms Going Boldly. And welcome back to Moms Going Boldly, where today we're talking about Star Trek Discovery Season 4, Episode 11, Rosetta. So, Vicki, did you like this episode? My God, can they stretch out the storyline anymore? <laughs> Every time I think they've stretched it to the brink, they stretch it even more. Yeah. Though I have to say I did like this episode. I liked some and- of it, but it was just, it was filler. I felt like the whole thing was filler. Yeah. Again, I'm with you. I liked the idea of what they needed to do, but I would love to see them go down to the planet Try to find what they need to find, find what they need to find halfway through the episode and then go right. forward. You know, just keep pushing us a little bit, you know, instead of we're going to go down to the episode and find what we need to find. And that's the entire episode. Right. This it is- wasn't, in all fairness. There was this, you know, sub story with ongoing Booker and Tarka thing, which is starting to feel like a Laurel and Hardy episode. I know. But this is exactly why I stopped watching The Walking Dead. They'd give us a great episode and then it was followed by boredom after boredom after boredom. Yeah. Just to stretch out everything. And we still have two more episodes, correct? Yep. So I wonder... Two more episodes which are likely to end on a cliffhanger. That's what I'm thinking. I'm wondering if they're going to stretch contact with 10C out till the very last second of the very last episode. Which, if by any indication from this episode, they're very big. So this episode's called Rosetta, which, of course, you know, they referenced this a little bit in the episode, but I thought I would go ahead and, you know, state maybe what might be obvious to everybody. But just in case, it refers to something called the Rosetta Stone, which was discovered in, I think, the 18th century, no, 19th century. Right. Yeah. And enabled linguists to actually... Translate that. Uh, translate yeah. ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs because it was a stone that had been carved in about 200 BC. It contained like an order from the government or whatever, and it was carved in three different languages. And two of those languages were known. And because those two languages were known, they served as a reference point to then translate the third, which was the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. So it's come to mean a tool or key to translation. That's what Rosetta Stone means. And of course, there's like, what is it? Is it a language class that's called Rosetta now? Yeah. Keeping that in mind, when I, you know, first saw this episode, I'm like, okay, this is going to be about discovering the key to translating with Species 10C, which has been a heavy theme that we've seen in a couple of episodes. So we start off this episode with a recap of the previous ep- episodes about what they're doing and where they are and why they're doing it and all the things that we know about trying to stop the DMA and trying to meet species 10C and trying to communicate with them. And the episode itself starts with them arriving at this dead planet that's just outside of the hyperfield in which species 10C exists. 
And there's only like a little bit more than a day left before the DMA is going to start pelting Earth and Navarre with debris and people are going to start dying. And so they're trying to, they're going to go to this planet to see if they can find something to help them connect with species 10C when they enter the hyperfield. And what's really interesting to me about this planet was that it's a former gas giant until the gas burned away. Now, I was a little confused by that because I thought gas giants didn't have any kind of solid core. So why is there a planet to land on? I don't know. I agree. That was my impression as well. I'm not really an expert either. So I was just kind of like, I thought the whole idea of a gas giant was that it was just gas. But maybe this was a gas giant with a core. I don't know. And the other thing that was really interesting to me was that they were talking about how when they got to the planet and they kind of were theorizing about what species 10C would be, they were talking about how they might be creatures that evolved to live in the gas layers, which reminded me of, and I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here, or behind, depending on how you look at it. Back in the 70s, you know, Carl Sagan came out with the Cosmos series, as well as the book. I love that book. I just ate that book, even though I didn't understand half of it because I was in elementary school. (laughs) But I loved it. And one of the things I remembered was that they had this theory of creatures living in the atmospheric layers of Jupiter. Okay. And so that's what this reminded me of. So I was kind of excited about that. Anyway, we're getting ready to go on this mission to go down to the former gas giant and see what they can find. And there's this wonderfully hilarious scene as Burnham is doing her log entry voiceover. And we're watching the team walk down the hall, the corridor, on their way to the the shuttle that's going to take them to the planet. And they're doing the slow-mo walk. Right. (laughs) The hero walk. Oh. oh, I thought it was a little heavy handed. It was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then Tall says to Detmer, fly good. Yeah. In a clear example of hero worship that was both awkward and charming all at the same time. What did you think of that? That was cute. I like that. Yeah, it was cute, too. So we've got Burnham and Saru and Detmer and Culber who are going on this away mission. And as they're approaching the shuttle, President Rillick talks to Burnham about why are you taking, you know, the entire senior staff with you? Right. There's a Kirk move. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, first Burnham says you're in good hands because Commander Nilsson's in command and that Burnham needs to go because she's a xenoanthropologist and Saru needs to go because he has an expertise in languages and he has sensory capabilities that humans don't. And Detmer needs to go because they need her to fly good, as Tall said. Right, right. <laughs> Culber, I'm not sure why they brought Culber, but it makes sense to have Culber there because he can help evaluate, you know, biological and medical and psychological elements that they might need right. information on. Because even on uh, the original series, they always seem to bring the doctor. Yeah. Just in case they need a doctor, always good to have a medic on hand. Yeah. Yeah. So that makes sense to me. And, and then what was really cool was that President really backed down. Yes. She trusted Burnham and she was like, okay, I understand. Which I'm hoping means the next time she won't ask the question at all, which would be nice to have that kind <laughs> of mutual respect and trust. Right. Unfortunately... We do have a dissenter. After President Rillick talks to her, then they go towards the shuttle, and all of a sudden there's like all these delegates standing there looking worried. Yeah. Including um, President Trina, who's like, we wish you the best of luck and, you know, thank you for working so hard for us. And then Dr. Harai, who was like, <laughs> don't screw it up. Right, right. So I guess he's supposed to be, you know, 
he's sort of like Stamets, and he's the COVID stand-in of just blunt and direct, and we're going to peel away all the courtesy here and just be blunt. Which, you know, I don't know. Is that necessary? We've got that in Reno. We've got that in Stamets. We've got that in Kovitz. Do we need this in Harai, too? Uh, I really actually enjoyed his role was it last episode anyway when he was talking about the difficulties of contact and i wondered why he was not going on this mission true yeah I mean, right he's like a xenolinguist yeah shouldn't he also be there in order to help translate whatever they found into how this might help them translate yeah that, i thought it was weird that he wasn't there i mean i thought that's why he was there he yeah. should have been on that away mission. But General Endoya is really unhappy with this mission. You know, she is the defender of Earth. Her planet is in danger. She's stuck out here on the edge of the galaxy. And she's like, we should be going right into the hyperfield and confronting these people, not trying to figure out how to talk to them first. You have no guarantee that you're going to find what you need down there. We're wasting time. We need to get in there. Right. And I can actually understand her tendency yeah. to lean towards Book and Tarka's side. Before the Federation came back together, Earth was more heavily dedicated to their own protection and their and only their own protection to the detriment of their own colonies. So I'd yes. imagine that would kind of be a difficult habit, for lack of a better word, to break for them. Yes. But I also appreciate, and we'll get to that a little further into right. this discussion, I also appreciate how even-handed she was in her approach. She expressed herself to Burnham. She later expresses herself to President Tarina. She's definitely got feelings. She's definitely got frustrations. But when presented with an opportunity to maybe take her feelings and frustrations and act on them, she, her approach is very even-handed, and I appreciated that, which to me was like, okay, that that's good. It's not just crazy people running around with their hair on fire. <laughs> right. They're people actually thinking and thinking through and being thoughtful. So Burnham and Saru and Detmer and Culber leave the ship and off they go. After Burnham was trying to explain to General Nadoya that yes, yes, I understand. And we're going to make this as fast as possible. This detour that seems like it's taking time may make things faster. Right. It was really good because she said she promised it would work. Which I was, puts a huge burden on her. I was going to say that too, yeah. She, she huge. did. And General Landoya, you know, is like, well, you know, this might help and it could be successful. I know she's really focused on the questioning of it. So, you know, these two people are, are sort of polar opposites. One's confident and one's like completely doubting. Meanwhile, we have... Uh, Booker and Tarka, who apparently have made their way uh, outside of the galaxy now and are trying to figure out how to get into the hyperfield on their own. Did we see them leave the galaxy or did that just happen? I don't think I don't we remember. did. I don't think we did. I, maybe we're just supposed to assume. Well, and that's why they went to get the programmable antimatter so they could make their shields go through the barrier without dying. And so I guess they did it. Right. I don't think so, we ever saw it, actually saw it happen, though. I don't think we did either. But now they're trying to figure out how to get into the hyperfield, knowing that Discovery's going to go into the hyperfield, and Discovery's got its own agenda. And Book doesn't want to interfere with Discovery's agenda, but he also doesn't want to be left behind. Right. And, of course, Tark is like, we're here to save millions. We're here to save billions, which, of course, isn't such a big lie. No, you're not. You're here to steal a power source. What's this we thing? There's no we. There's you. Right. And then Book, and who's Book. like... Yeah, and Book thinks he's there to save millions. Right. Yeah. He's more connected with Discovery. Right. The we that Book is, and he, I don't think, has really recognized this yet, but the we, when you say we to Book, Book's thinking he and him and Discovery. Yeah. And maybe Tarka. But when Tarka says we, it's about him. Exactly. So they come up with this plan that they're going to attach themselves 
to discovery like a remora on earth but book refers to an animal on his world called a night's prey and they're just going to ride discovery in through the hyperfield mm-hmm. and then now and then they'll be there and be able to know what discovery is going to do and then plan their moves around discovery but they need to numb zora's sensors <laughs> right <laughs> that which requires them getting on discovery and planting a program or something a patch and then they'll be able to attach to the hull of the ship and hide from Zora for a little while. She'll figure it out eventually, but they can hide from her for a little while. So this requires them going on board Discovery to do this little mission. Then we have our away team going down on the planet. And I thought the planet scenes were actually quite good. And, you know, I like a, I like an alien planet. I like learning about new species and what they're like. So I thought that was kind of fun. Though it was a little also disturbing and depressing. It was pretty clear that there were bodies of what we assume is species 10C on the planet after the gas layers were destroyed by this asteroid storm that essentially destroyed everything. And presumably they they set up the hyperfield when they knew that the asteroids were coming and to save their as much of their population as possible. But we don't actually know that. For all we know... 10C could be an entirely different species that left and built the hyper field. And this other species that they encountered is a different species that they left to die. We just don't know. You know, there could be more than one sapient species on this world. So it's all still questions. But they essentially found a, a mass graveyard of huge creatures. I mean, they said there was this huge bone that used to be cartilage that they assumed was for existing in the upper layers of a gas giant. And at this point, they encounter some kind of substance, uh, a complex hydrocarbon compound on the surface. They don't know what it is. They don't recognize it. It's not found in any Federation databases. And then shortly, shortly after they find that, Saru starts to see visions. Right. And he's panicked and he hasn't felt fear since he went through the Vaharai, which the Kelpians go through. And so it's just really disconcerting for him. And he's very stressed out. And for a moment there, I was thinking that Saru was going to be the Rosetta. Oh, okay. That he was somehow, because of his enhanced sensory perception that Burnham mentioned on her way out of the ship, yeah. that he was going to be the one that was going to have to do the translating. And I thought that'd be kind of cool, but that's not what happened. No, oh, no, well. no. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to pause right here for a quick break. We'll be right back. Hey, Doug Gramley here from Yeah, That Can't Be Good. Doug here from the 13th Warehouse. If you are a fan of Eureka, please join Kim, Vicky, Skip, and myself over at Yeah, That Can't Be Good for an episode-by-episode podcast of all things Eureka at EurekaRewatch.com. If you're a fan of Warehouse 13, please join Kim and Vicky over at the 13th Warehouse at the13thwarehouse.com. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit us on Twitter at Eureka Warehouse. And we're back. So they go in, they find a structure, and they go into the structure. They're exploring, and they're touching, and they come into more contact with this hydrocarbon. And then all of a sudden, Culver's starting to get visions, and Burnham's starting to get visions. And they realize that it's this hydrocarbon compound, and they reprogram. And it's Detmer who does this. She reprograms their programmable matter suits to 
filter out the hydrocarbon and then they're fine and she was awesome because she was like she hadn't touched any of this stuff so she was perfectly calm while everybody else is freaking out because of these hallucinations that they're seeing right and i originally thought that detmer's implant was what was protecting that's what her. i thought too yeah when they were like i wonder why she's not doing this and i'm like hello she's got like an implant in her prefrontal cortex hello i'm <laughs> even though it didn't turn out to be the case i'm surprised they didn't think that yes exactly <laughs> I mean, at least Culber, who's like a scientist, should right. have been like, okay, let's start thinking about things, obvious things that we know are different. Yeah. Right. Uh, at least mentioning it, I think, would have been smart. But, okay, no worries. So they figured out that there's this hydrocarbon, and so they're like, okay, now we know what to look for, and we're going to not come into contact again with this. And so they're going to keep looking, and then they discover something in another room of this huge structure, because they're not finding anything else. There's no writing on the walls that they recognize. There's no devices that they recognize. To me, I'm thinking, well, how would you know? It could be something so completely different from your frame of reference that you wouldn't know that it's a writing or it's a structure. And perhaps the hydrocarbon itself is a kind of writing. So they're like going to go into another room because they did find something they wanted to check out. So meanwhile, we've got Booker and Tarka who have beamed aboard into a Jeffrey's tube and they have to figure out a way to get to engineering, to plant the patch, to numb Zora's senses. And there are a couple of people in engineering. So they're trying to find a different way to get to engineering. And somehow they stop outside of the mess hall, which is mostly empty, except for President Tarina and uh, General Ndoye. And did you know Book had this cool, like, virtual window thing that no, he used? No. That was cool. Yeah. <laughs> so Book's able to see through the walls and watch President Tarina and General Ndoye have a conversation about how frustrated General Ndoye is and that how she should be there to help her people. And they came because they were in a hurry and they didn't, you know, get all their delegates that they wanted to have on board. And, and now, you know, her people are trying to evacuate and they need all the help they could get. And why is she here? Why are they delayed? And blah, 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 blah. Right. And President Serena is trying to be calm, but I didn't, for, you know, I was surprised that she wasn't as logical as she could have been. I see what yeah. you're saying anyway. now. Yeah. So Endoye leaves, and so then Book has this bright idea. We need to recruit Endoye to our side. She supported us when we took the vote on whether to blow the DMA out of the water or do first contact, and she liked our ideas, and now she's unhappy that they're just waiting, and we should recruit her to our side and have her help us. What did you think of that idea? Well, again, I thought the whole situation was contrived and obvious. The wall they happen to dial into is, is the room where they're having this conversation. Yeah. So. I will say this. The one thing I really liked about it is that it sort of reinforces Book as a communal social person. He functions best in a social structure. It's funny because all this time that he was a, uh, a courier, was yeah. that it? Courier, yeah. Yeah, all the time he was a courier, he said he worked alone. But as soon as he found Michael, mm -hmm. and they started working together. Even if he subconsciously realized that was the, his preferred manner of functioning. He prefers a social structure. He prefers being part of a team. And so recruiting more people to join his team made all the sense in the world to me. Even if the, if the circumstances were contrived, I agree. The step, you know, that's the, and again, like we talked about before, when they say we between Tarka and Book, it's not Tarka that's on Book's team. It's everybody else. Right. I liked that part. Even though I agree, you know, it's like, oh, this is, happens to be the one where they're talking. Right. 
I know when the DMA replicated itself, I know they understood that it was more powerful yeah. now. And so I'm assuming this is now where he's finding out that Earth and Navarre are in jeopardy. Because they couldn't have known that before, correct? No, because that, well, unless they intercepted the message, but they didn't say that. Yeah. And it shouldn't have been intercepted because it was coded and Zora had to decode it. So there shouldn't have been any way. So yeah, they must have learned that from something. I guess they learned that from this conversation. Or maybe they learned it monitoring other, you know, if they, if they took a little longer to get out of the galaxy and they were monitoring other channels, I don't think it would be a big secret. Oh, sure. No. I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah. See, I was just under the impression up until this point, although they know the new DMA was stronger and moved faster. I yeah, didn't that think, one they knew right away. Right. I didn't think they would be aware that it was heading for Earth and Navarre until just now at this moment when they overheard this conversation. Which makes me wonder why Book isn't feeling, I don't know, guilt about what he's done. Yeah, and maybe he is. I don't know. We saw it play out ad nauseum when he lost his own planet. And I get it was his own planet. But now Michael's two planets are in jeopardy. And I guess it's just me, but I'd like to see a little bit of guilt on his yeah. part, and I'm not seeing it. And maybe it's coming. I mean, you know, guilt is a very unpleasant feeling, and a lot of people run from it. And one way to run from it is to give yourself a task to do to order to save the world. You know, even later when he gets to talk to Nadoya, yeah, she says, my planet's in danger, and it's because of him. It's yes. because of him. He just glosses over that and says, I'm here to help you. I'm going to take care of this. He caused yeah. it. And I want to see a little glimmer of book. And I'm not seeing it. Yeah. I want to see a little glimmer of some sort of guilt that he may be the cause of Earth and Navarre's destruction. And I'm not seeing it. What would that, what would that look like for you? I don't know. It's just we went through so many episodes of his depression and guilt over his own planet. And I get yeah. it. Like I said, it's his own planet. I get it. And now... After we had to sit through so many scenes of him being depressed for how many episodes. And now it's just matter of fact, like I'm doing what I need to do. And yeah, your planet's in danger because of me, basically. But I'm still right. I just want to see a little bit of something. Something. Personal responsibility. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I mean, even a facial expression, something. I I can relate to that. Yep. You're right. That would make it would give it a lot more depth. Yeah. Good observation. So we now have these two uh, storylines going on here. We've got Book and Tarka, you know, moving through the Jeffrey's tubes on the ship trying to fool Zora. And then we also have the away team on the planet. And the away team get into this other structure and this other chamber and they realize it's essentially a nursery to protect the young you know it's so reinforced it's structurally enforced it's and they were like that means that you know they really care about their young and that means that you know they care about protecting the vulnerable and that's good we can we can use this and michael decides that she's going to let herself feel whatever the feeling is from the hydrocarbon in the nursery because she wants to understand this may be the only way to understand so she feels it and realizes that she's feeling love and safety and security and it dawns on them that these different hydrocarbons have different emotional resonances it's like a notes on a musical scale right a different note for each different kind of hydrocarbon and this is this is the rosetta they realize this is it we just need to understand the feelings generated by these hydrocarbons, and then we'll be able to communicate with Tensi. What do you think about that? Yeah. uh, To be honest with you, the whole cocoon thing gave me flashbacks of the Zindi nursery. 
<laughs> they found on Wait, I blocked that out. I don't even remember that. Yeah, I skip over that every time I rewatch. <laughs> but and then they're feeling peace, and I was like, oh no. Wait, it was the like the insectoids hanging yeah. nursery with the eagle. Yes. I don't. Know. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I barely remember that. Well, I I don't know about you, but I skip that one usually because it was ridiculous. I actually really liked it. And we had a really interesting moment with Detmer, who, when she felt it, was overwhelmed by it because she'd never felt that before. Right. She's probably the one character where we've actually gotten to see some actual real depth of understanding who she is. Yes. Real depth of understanding. I mean, you know, by an emotional response to a situation, not a verbal response to a situation. We can go ahead and hear about Owo having lost friends and needing to act. Or we can hear about, ooh, I can't remember his name, having having had to um, be evacuated due to a natural disaster. Those are words. Right. But the behavior is so powerful. Exactly. The actions are so powerful. And Detmer's sudden shock at this feeling and then retreat into her clamshell when she realized she had exposed herself and made herself vulnerable was really powerful. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. So now we've got Book and Tarka on two different missions on the ship. And Tarka goes to the uh, engineering section and he is frustrated because there are people in there. So he creates tricky little almost false alerts with the replicator system all over the ship so that he can have some private time in engineering. And so Reno runs around trying to fix everything to get that done. Right. And meanwhile, Book meets with Andoya and says, you want to help me? And she says, yes, but only after diplomatic options are attempted. Oh, yes. I mean, I thought that was a good even-handed way of handling it, even though she had not, you know, 10 minutes before I've been saying, I don't want to do it this way. No, it's exactly the way. I agree with that. That's the way it should be handled. I agree with her, too. But Book gives her his word. And how could he give her his word when we have to deal with Tarka? That's true. So here we are now, and Doya has been made promises that someone might not be able to keep twice. Right. Book makes a promise to her, and Michael makes a promise to her. And he should know better at this point. (laughs) He should. You can't expect Tarka to follow any guideline. No, absolutely not. And, you know, Tarka plays close to his vest, and he doesn't discuss things. And, yeah, and for as smart about people's behavior, as book is he does seem to be missing it in Tarka over and over again oh my god I know I hate to think that he did that as just lip service I mean even though we're saying as smart as he is why doesn't he see this I like to think that as smart as he is why doesn't he see this and not that he's just handing her a line to get her to agree I mean if that were the case I mean that would be a significant character shift for him he's not really manipulative he's never demonstrated manipulative behavior before Mm. I disagree. Okay, tell me. (laughs) When he was making his speech, when they were voting on whether or not to try diplomacy or to go after the DMA, he definitely was trying to manipulate Michael. Yep, you're right. Definitely. That That was the move. He said, sometimes people can come together, but whatever he did, which was basically telling her that they're together, they love each other, but it's not going to work because he sees it one way and you're going to do this. Yep, no, you're right. So, I'd forgotten about that. I disagree. I told you I was done with this guy a long time ago. Yep, okay. <laughs> Good callback. Thank you for that reminder. So Tarka finishes whatever he's doing in the engineering, but not fast enough because right. Reno comes back complaining about being pr- 
pranked at such a terrible time and discovers Tarka. And then the next scene we have is the return of the away, away team. team. Yeah. And so we have a lot of interesting little tidbits here that I really enjoy. And I saved some of them for the last because they're not really moving this particular plot line forward, though they're moving maybe overarching plot lines forward. So earlier in the episode, we had an interesting interaction between Rillick and Dr. Hirai, where Rillick's unhappy about how negative he is. Yes. And she needs him to be a little bit more supportive of the team because this is stressful for everyone. What I really enjoyed is that he was playing essentially crossword, three-dimensional crossword, like Wordle. Yeah. <laughs> crossword. She was like, what is this? It's a game that Dr. Kovic introduced him to from ancient Earth. So we have another reference related to Kovic and ancient Earth. I know you're dying. I know. I am dying. <laughs> three-hour tour <laughs> oh check <laughs> our from? <laughs> yeah check our facebook page because i just saw an article about the three-hour tour and i shared oh, I, you know i saw that and i need to read it right? i didn't yeah. get to read the whole thing but i read some of it yeah so i got really excited about that but also this interaction was really good and i thought really was really good explaining to him why this was important right and she's right and she was right yeah. and so i thought that was a great scene Another scene that kind of is character building for Rillick and builds up my respect for her, as well as, you know, kind of gives us a, an understanding where Dr. Harai is and the funny little Easter egg for, about Dr. Kovich, which may or may not mean anything. Might have been a red herring. So then we also had a, a scene between Tall and Reno where Tall talked about how they really respected Detmer and admired Detmer and wanted to be like Detmer. Right. Which was really a nice little scene because it was nice to see tall sort of looking to stretch themselves in a particular way but also then reno saying it's great that you want to stretch yourself but please understand detmer's a human being and what you see isn't all there is there's a lot of stuff there that is not always obvious right made reference to the ptsd that detmer experienced when they emerged from the wormhole and then crashed on that ice planet Right, and I'm kind of glad we revisited that. And we revisited twice because Deborah re- referenced it too. Right. So that was kind of fun. And as a follow-up to that... You know, Reno had said, well, why don't you go talk to Detmer? And Tall was like, oh, I can never do that. Then later, Tall approaches Detmer in the lounge and they sit down and start having a conversation, which was very cute. Yes. And very nice. Yes. I I really like that. And then we also have a wonderful scene with Saru and President Farina, where after they talk about their experience with the hydrocarbons, President Trina recognizes how stressful it was for Saru to feel fear again and asks him if he wants to go for a walk in the holodeck, to which he said he would be delighted. And it's just charming as all get out. Yes. And then our last scene, Book returns to his ship. Tark is already there. Book's like, did you do it? Tark is like, yeah. Book's like, enjoy is going to help us. And then Rena says, hello, isn't it nice to return home to discover there's a hostage in your ship? Yeah. And so- that's the end of the episode. Did I miss anything? No, I, I was just, I'm wondering if she's really a hostage or if she'll remain a hostage if they're going to talk her into joining forces with them. You know, it's funny because I think that she will, but she'll join forces with Book because there's going to be a conflict between Book and Tarka coming eventually. Sure. Book is finally, eventually going to stick his foot down and say, oh, look, I discovered my morals again. There's going to be a separation between Book and Tarka. Then it's going to be Tarka alone and Endoye and Reno, I think, with Book. That's what I think is going to happen. Yeah. Of course, we're going to get some wonderful lines from Reno yeah. that are going to be delightfully sarcastic and snarky and to the point that are going to drive home 
what the real problem is. Yeah, I missed her in the last few episodes. Yeah, she needs her own series, man. <laughs> we need to say that because when we said that Captain Pike needed his own series, we got that. We got so we that, need to yeah. say, Reno needs her own series. <laughs> Hopefully Paramount or CBS or whoever hears that. Yeah. <laughs> is there anything else? Did I miss anything else from this episode? No, I think you got everything. All right, cool. On a scale of one to ten, what would you give this? Giving it a six and a half. A six and a half. Okay, you know what? I'm going to go with you on that one. Six and a half. Maybe seven, but no more. All right, cool. So the next episode, the title of the episode has not yet been announced, but it'll air a week from yesterday at the time of this recording. So we invite our listeners to join us as we talk about Star Trek Discovery Season 4, Episode 12. See you then. We'll see you then. You can continue exploring the universe with Moms Going Boldly by following us on Facebook at facebook.com slash moms going boldly and on twitter at moms going boldly the music used on moms going boldly is without limits by ross bugden music on twitter at ross bugden licensed under a creative commons attribution license creativecommons.org you can listen to moms going boldly on podbean spotify google Podcasts, stitcher and player fm And we're now also available on Apple Podcasts. Transfer complete.